So this morning is Vision Sunday, and as we think about vision, one of the things that comes to my mind is those last pictures that we saw. Can you imagine where that happens just almost on a weekly basis? I mean, as I saw those, those pictures of those young men and women and older men and women coming to faith in Jesus, I think to myself, we just want to see more and more of that. You know, on Vision Sunday, what we do historically is we kind of look back at the, what happened the past year, and then we look forward just a little bit. And one of the things we produced this year, and I hope everyone got one of them, is, is this little brochure that you got uh, coming in. And in that brochure, there's all sorts of stories and information about various victories. Uh, you'll see some stories about generosity. This past year, in addition to our vision offering and in addition to our weekly contributions, uh, we gave something like over $70,000 to various needs all around the country. Uh, most recently in December, we gave uh, right at $36,000 to help uh, with the tornadoes uh, and the people who were struggling in Mayfield, Kentucky. Uh, and, and the list goes on and on of how you have been so generous over the past year. This next year, as we think about what we're going to accomplish and do, as we pray and seek the Lord, especially as we think about, about vision, there's some information on the third page of this uh, bulletin about uh, our contribution needs and what our budget will be. And so our, our uh, weekly budget was raised just a little. We tried to be very conservative with that. It's $28,190 a week. And our vision goal is $87,500 a quarter. And as you think about uh, your help with, with that, I hope you will imagine us joining together to do together what none of us could do individually. And that's really what we do as a church. God's vision, God's plan for the church is, is we come together in the name of Jesus and we think about all the ways we can bless our community. And that leads us to think a little bit about vision. As we think about building a future with God, I want to begin today, and if you have that, that bulletin, uh, there's an outline of today's message uh, in the inside on page two. And so if you'll look at that, you'll, you can sort of track with the, with the sermon but as we think about building a future with God, I want us to first of all think about a definition of vision. Here's what vision is. Vision is a divinely given picture of what could be and should be. Think about this for a moment. It's a divinely given picture of what could be. This is, this is something that's not just some kind of a pipe dream. No, this could actually happen. We can join with God and make a real difference in the world. But not only is it a divinely given picture of what could be, it's also a divinely given picture of what should be. There's this sense that this vision that God gives us should compel us, should move us. There's a sense of oughtness about it. We, we look at our world and we see what's going on and we think, how can we as God's people join together to make a difference? This is what really should be. You see, vision is important both for our individual lives, but also vision is important for us as a church. And notice in the definition we said that vision is a, notice, divinely given thing. It's not something that we just sort of uh, come up with. No, no, we're talking about God's vision, his divine vision. It's exciting to know that God has a vision already for the College Hills Church. We don't create it, we just discover it. 
And so I'm convinced that as we begin to read Scripture, as we begin to seek God, as we begin to listen to the Spirit, as we listen to one another, as we look out at our community, then God begins to give us this sense of a vision. Notice we said it's a divinely given picture of something. It implies we can see it. Uh, it's, it's a clear picture. It's, it's a full color image of tomorrow's church. And the funny thing about pictures is they're, they're specific. Vision is visual. And so as we think about a picture, any picture, we see certain faces. We, we know that it, it captures a moment in time. So this is a picture of my lovely wife. This was on Christmas morning. And I love this picture because you can see there's so much joy on her face. And so the question we ask is, why was she smiling so much? My um, father's uh, wife, Pat, is, is just to the left of her. And I don't know all the reasons why there's so much joy on her face, but I think one of the reasons is, obviously, it's, it's Christmas morning, but also right, just right there to her right, your left, is um, her favorite Christmas gift, which I happen to get for her, by the way, which is an air fryer. And that air fryer evidently was giving her a whole lot of joy. And I can tell you that air fryer was giving me a lot of joy because later on that afternoon, she used it to cook wings. And those wings are really great in an air fryer. But the thing about a picture is there, there are details there's, it captures a moment in time. It is specific. And the same is true with, with vision. That vision needs to be clear and, and specific. Here's what I would say. For a vision to be dynamic, it must be specific. And so think for a moment at Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 5 through 6. Jesus gives the disciples this vision for ministry. He says, I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then for something like 38 verses, he gives them all these specific details about what they're to do, how they're to heal the sick and cast out demons, and how if they don't accept the message of Christ, well, then you're just kind of move on to the next people. On and on it goes. It's specific. For a vision to be dynamic, it must be specific. And this brings us then to the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, we're beginning a message series today. And we're going to be reading through the book of Nehemiah. And we're, today we're in Nehemiah chapter 1, the first 9 or 10 verses in that particular section of Scripture. And one of the things we're going to learn is that Nehemiah is one of the greatest examples of someone that God used to do amazing things, not because he was so amazing, but God used him to do these incredible things because he had a sense of vision. Now, let's begin with just a little bit of background information. Uh, one of the reasons I love Nehemiah, the book, is there's not a lot of amazing things that happen in the book itself. I mean, Nehemiah does not part the Red Sea. Nehemiah does not walk on water. Nehemiah is just this average kind of guy. But the difference is he had this real sense of what needed to be done. He had this real, clear, compelling vision. And because he lived into that vision, we're still talking about him today. 
Because he understood that, that call that God had put on his life. He was able to do amazing things. He used this ordinary man to do an extraordinary thing. Now for a little bit of history so that you'll just understand a bit about who Nehemiah is and where he fits into the trajectory of Scripture. Around 586 B.C., the Babylonians invaded Judah, and you know Israel was divided into two. There was the northern part, Israel, and then there's the southern part, Judah. The Babylonians had, had came to Judah. They destroyed the city, including the temple that Solomon had previously built. And thousands of people are taken from Judah and they go in, they're exiled to Babylon. And then 70 years after the Babylonian invasion, Cyrus, the king of, of Persia, and he had by this time conquered the Babylonians, he gave, amazingly, he gave the Jews permission to go back into Israel. God began to work in this pagan person's heart. He used him and he allowed the people of Israel to go back and so led by Zerubbabel, they, they rebuild the temple. And although the temple wasn't as fabulous and beautiful as the original one, they rebuild the temple. And it seems like things are, are going well for the people of God. And yet, things take a turn south once again. Some of the old problems resurfaced. The temple wasn't being maintained. Sacrifices ceased. The people of God were sort of adopting the practices of the culture that they were, they were, they were immersed in by the, the pagan nations around them. They weren't serving God. And this, what was, this is what was going on when Nehemiah, who's still in Persia, when Nehemiah hears about all of this. The people of God are at a low point, politically, spiritually, socially. And so he gets wind of all this going on. Now, at this point, Nehemiah is not aware. He does not know the kind of impact that he's going to have on the nation of Israel. But when he hears about the fact that the walls around Jerusalem are still down, the gates have been burned, he knows the people of God are vulnerable to outside attack. In verse 3 of Nehemiah chapter 1, he knows the people of God are experiencing great disgrace and trouble. And when Nehemiah hears this, Nehemiah begins to weep. Nehemiah can't get his people off his mind. And Nehemiah mourns. He fasts for days. His people consume him. He He's concerned for them. And here we learn something about vision. And if you have your little outline, you'll notice the first Roman numeral is this. Vision begins with a concern. This is not just a passing concern. God has a way of planting a desire, a burden in our heart. And we begin to see a picture of what could be and a picture of what should be. And as a result, a vision starts to emerge. I look at College Hills, and I see that our greatest visions have emerged out of a, a point of concern, a, a need, something implanted in our hearts by God. And so there were some leaders, Larry Locke, Gail Hearn, who were doing work in recovery, 
uh, who were doing work in the jails. We had uh, started some Bible studies in jails, and we found out that some of the guys in jails were coming out. They didn't have a place to live. And if they didn't have a good place to live around good people, we knew that they would fall back into some, some of the same old patterns and behaviors. And so Gail Hearn and Larry and others began thinking, what can we do? And as a result of that, that vision, that, that concern, a vision began to emerge. And as a result, we now have this thing we call the Hearn House, where at present, 15 guys live there. Guys that have struggled, guys that need a place to stay. We have Bible studies every week. A lot of the guys come here and on Sunday morning. But that ministry, it started with a vision. It's a rather a concern. And that concern grew into a vision. Just a few moments ago, we had our, our VIP sitting to my uh, left, uh, right behind where Jimmy McDowell is, is, is sitting. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we think about the VIP ministry, where, where did that come from? Well, we had a family. We had a concern. We had a family with a special needs child. And they began thinking, how, how can this child fit into the life of our church? What can be done? And so people met together and prayed together and began thinking and had real concern for the VIP, for the for special needs adults. And over time, that ministry has grown and developed, and now we have 30 or 40 men and women with special needs who are here every Sunday morning being attended to and cared for, and they hear the gospel, and they're part of our church. Where did that vision come from? It began with a concern. You think about all the greatest visions we've had as a church. It, it starts with this sense of, of concern. You think about Hearthside. Where did that start? Well, it started with some people thinking, what, what happens when some of our older people need a place to live? And, and it, it, from that thought, this from that concern, this ministry, this vision developed. But here's the thing you need to understand about this sense of concern that God will plant in your heart. Not everyone will share your concern. Not everyone will understand. Uh, not everyone will have this sense of, well, you know, what, what could be and what, what should be. Yeah, I wonder, as, as I read through the book of Nehemiah, I get the impression that, that Nehemiah was probably the only one who was really concerned about the fact that Jerusalem was vulnerable, that the walls were torn down, that the gates had been burned. He's the only one who has this real sense of concern about it. Other people were happy with the status quo, just happy with how things are. But not Nehemiah. And here's something I want to say to you. If God is putting a concern in your heart, if God is working, you have this sense of concern. Then, friends, begin praying about that and, and, and thinking uh, about that. Because he just might be birthing a great vision within you. And this is on the outline. Before God gives us a solution, friends, he gives us, gives us a concern. Now, often as we're reading through the book of Nehemiah, you know as well as I, there's some parts of the Bible that are kind of really exciting and wonderful, and there are other parts of the Bible that you just sort of sense you're, they're kind of dry as dust. And so we have two verses in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, and Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, and, and we almost gloss over those two, those two passages. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, it says this, 
says, in the month of Kislev, and we wonder, what month is that, Kislev? It doesn't sound like January or February to us. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was still in the citadel of Susa. You're reading that in Nehemiah 1.1, and your heart doesn't beat fast. It seems kind of boring to you. And then we skip down to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, and down there we get another sense of, ti- of time, and we wonder, what is this about? You see, Here's the second thing on your outline. Vision takes time. From Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, it was, it was a four-month time frame. In Nehemiah 1, 1, God began to birth this vision, this concern in Nehemiah's heart, but he didn't act on it until chapter 2 and verse 1. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he goes and talks to Artaxerxes, who's the king of Persia, to talk about how he wants to take this trip back to Israel and to to deal with his problem. But he's thinking about it. He's praying about it. He's mourning over Israel for four months. You see, for a vision to become a reality, it it takes time. A vision is like a, a seed. It plants. It's planted and begins to grow and mature before it springs to life. Here's what Andy Stanley said, which I think is really good. Andy Stanley said, for vision to survive, it must be mature and healthy before being exposed to the cynical, critical, stubborn environment in which it is expected to survive. And maturity requires time. It might be a good thing you're thinking about, but it might not be a God thing. But one of the ways you're going to know this is real is, is it takes some time. I mean, it might be some, a passing fad for you. You might have a concern for a day or two and it goes away. Or maybe this is something that's on your heart. Just the way it was with Nehemiah. This didn't go away. He was prayerful and he focused. And then over time, the vision starts to become a reality. But here's something else. God doesn't always just mature a vision. He matures us in preparation for the vision. Think about all the examples in the Bible of these leaders. And what God did before he used them, he he took a little time. God had this great sense of vision, but it took a little time before Moses was ready. Moses, you may recall, went into the wilderness and he spent 40 years in the wilderness. And we might think, well, is is that wasted time? Oh, no, no. Waiting time is never wasted time. He was in the wilderness for 40 years. It took 40 years before finally he was ready to be used by God. Think about Paul for a moment. Paul spent three years in Arabia before he was ready to start preaching and teaching and going on all those missionary journeys and writing the 13 New Testament books that he wrote. It took some time for for him to be prepared for him to lead that vision. It it takes time for us. And friends, I think it takes time for churches. Sometimes churches aren't ready. Sometimes we need to mature and grow, and then God will use us to accomplish this thing that he wants to accomplish in us. And here's the, the final thing. There's one last thing we need to see. Vision. Time isn't wasted time. But then the third point Vision ultimately 
grows from a posture of prayer. I love Nehemiah chapter 1. And one of the things I like about it is I love this prayer that, that Nehemiah utters. I think we can learn so much about praying by reading these great prayers we find in Scripture. And so before Nehemiah does anything, he prays. You see, vision, if it's not prayed over, and it's not prayed over a lot, I, I'm not thinking it's a vision that's come from God. The more serious we are about vision, the more serious we are about praying. And so look at this prayer. Here's how he begins the prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he, he starts his prayer with praise. Now, at this moment um, in Nehemiah's life, he was a cupbearer to, and we'll talk a little bit more as this sermon series moves on about what that means exactly, but he's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. The most powerful leader in all the world at this point is Artaxerxes. And yet compared to God, Artaxerxes is nothing. And so he begins with this praise. Lord, you're the God of heaven. You're great and awesome. You're the one who keeps this covenant of love. But the next part of the prayer is also interesting. What he does next is he, he confesses sin. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Notice that this is a wonderful example of a leader. He doesn't pass the buck. He doesn't shift blame. Oh, no, he, he confesses sin. But he doesn't just say it's the people who have committed sin. No, no, he, he implicates himself. He confesses his sins. He confesses the sins in his father's family. And then finally... He claims God's promises. Look at verse 8, where he says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. The first part of this occurred because of their sin because of their unfaithfulness they were scattered among the nations they were scattered the northern part of israel were scattered by the assyrians and now the southern kingdom was scattered uh, up to, uh, over to babylon but what he's praying now is that god will make good on his promise that god will now bring a remnant of his people back together prayer is really important as we think about vision you see Prayer does so many things. Prayer causes us to slow down. We're part of a fast-paced culture, and I fear sometimes we, we're more um, impatient than God is. As I read through Scripture, God is very patient. As I, as I read the analogies and the images that talk about how God works among people, how God works in our lives, he all the time talks about agriculture images. He talks about it's like planting a seed. It's like, it's like you know, crops growing. And, and those of you in this room, and I know I'm speaking to some people who farm for a living. Those of you who farm for a living, you know you need a lot of patience to be a farmer. And so God's vision is like that. Seeds are planted and we're, we're patient. And prayer, it, it forces us to slow down. And prayer does something else. Prayer helps me to begin seeing things from God's perspective. We talk about vision. We're, we said it's a, it's a dynamic picture, but it's this 
picture of God's preferred future. That's what we're seeking. We're asking the question, what is God's future for us? What's it going to look like five years down the road as we seek the face of God and get in sync with the will of God? As we pray, it causes us to begin looking at things from his perspective. And, and God's perspective is much different than my perspective or our perspective. Prayer does something else. Prayer activates my faith. And as we think about vision, understand it is an act of faith. We begin praying and thinking and then planning and for this specific future that God has for us. And then we boldly, we, we step out in faith. Prayer does that. We're, we're people of faith. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll be around folks and we'll, you know, be you know, concerned about this or that. And I'll always say, we're, we're people of faith. We're about God. And God is involved. If God is involved in this, it becomes a lot easier. If God is involved in this, he's going to open doors and he's going to create scenarios that we never even imagined. Prayer is something that activates our faith. There's a huge connection between vision and prayer. It was Jesus who said, in John chapter 15 and verse 5, hear this verse. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we want to seek God. Oh, God has a beautiful vision, I'm convinced, for College Hills. As we look back and reflect on last year and see all these incredible stories of, of generosity and men and women coming to faith and being involved in missions and, and being involved in things that, that were a blessing to the, not only the community, but literally a blessing to our world. Now we want to look to the future and think and begin to dream and ask, what is God's preferred future for us? See, as we seek God and begin thinking about vision, it, it begins with a concern. What could be and should be. And it takes time. And it's bathed in prayer. Now here's one of the things I know. As we think about a corporate vision, that's one thing, but let's think for just a second about your personal vision. And I don't know what God has in store for you or what God's will for you is, but I do know this. The one thing I will say is that God's vision for your life is that you be conformed to the image of his son. He says that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 21. I don't know everything about your future, but one of the things I know he wills for you, his vision for you, is that your life, whether you're a husband or a wife, a, a parent, whether you're a student, younger person or older person, regardless of where you are, God's vision for you is that you'll be conformed to the image of his son. And if you get in sync with God, it's amazing what your future will hold. Now today, you may be at a place in your life where you're saying, you know, I, I, I feel far from God. I'm out of sync with the vision of God. I, I want to be, as I start this new year, I want to be in sync with God. If that's who you are today, we'd love to help you. I'll be down front. We're going to sing a song of invitation. We'll have an elder and his wife in the back, and they will talk to you as well. If there's anything we can help you with, come as we stand and sing this, this song.